Um, my name is Brandon, as you just heard. It's good to see you. Uh, if you've never met me before, I usually serve on the worship and production teams here at St. Peter's. Um, I'm also married to Alice. Again, you've just met and many of you will know. Uh, tonight, we'll be looking at the last chapter of the book of 1 John, or 1 John. I'm American, so I'm going to call it 1 John. Um, this is my second time speaking here in the evening service. Uh, the first time was a few months ago. We were going through the book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Some of you may have been here. Um, I mentioned that because back then I talked about my background growing up in the U.S., living through some hurricanes, blah, blah, blah. But one thing I didn't mention, which is a core part of my identity, I'd say other than Alice and Jesus, um, is that I love Lord of the Rings. Um, I know. You're probably thinking, whatever, everyone likes Lord of the Rings, of course, uh, but I am obsessed with it. Uh, I've seen the movies upwards of 100 times each. You can ask my parents, they will confirm. Um, I've read all the books, all of them, the three central ones and all the other stuff. Um, and in a very dark period in my teenage years, I tried to learn Elvish. Um, well, the less said about that, the better. Um, I've even watched the hours and hours of making of featurettes of the movies where guys are literally sitting making fake chain mail, uh, and I was gripped. It was beautiful. Um, if you don't know the story of Lord of the Rings, uh, let me regale you with a short summary, which is uh, very oversimplified, uh, but it will make sense why I'm doing this in a second, hopefully. Uh, Lord of the Rings is set in a fictional world where a dark lord created a ring uh, which he used to try and take over the world. The dark lord was defeated, the ring was supposedly lost forever, but cut to a thousand years later and a character named Bilbo stumbles upon a magic ring in a cave. Uh, some more years pass, Bilbo decides to basically retire, uh, give everything he owns, including this magic ring to his nephew Frodo. And then Frodo, with the help of a family friend, Gandalf the Wizard, realized that the ring is actually the Dark Lord's ring. And not only that, but the Dark Lord is actually not dead. He's very much alive, just been hiding out for thousands of years, and he really, really wants his ring back so he could get back to taking over the world. Uh, so Gandalf, Frodo, and Frodo's friend slash gardener Sam set off to find some more friends to help them try and destroy the ring before the Dark Lord can send his minions to kill them and take it back. However, on their way, they begin to realize that the ring itself, instead of being some inanimate object, slowly starts to corrupt whoever is near it so that it can return to its master. And despite their best efforts, on their way, the ring starts to corrupt some of Frodo's friends to turn against him, meaning that they have to separate. So Frodo and Sam go off alone towards the inconspicuously named Mount Doom, apparently the only place where the ring can be destroyed while the rest of them try to thwart the Dark Lord's machinations elsewhere. Will they succeed? Who knows? Um, anyway, now that I've lost any shred of coolness that I probably didn't have in the first place, the reason I bring that up is because in thinking about this talk tonight, I kept thinking about Lord of the Rings. Um, and there's one scene in particular in the first movie book, take your pick, uh, but let's go with movie, where Bilbo is preparing to retire and give up the ring. He's standing in his house um, with his family friend Gandalf, the wizard. And uh, the actor, I think it's Ian Holm, is, is 
doing this great thing. Because at one second, he's like all happy and joyful and everything. And then he gets to the ring as he's like preparing to like give it up. And then the camera zooms in and his face like changes. Um, And he starts to look longingly at the ring as if he's been suddenly gripped by something. And he whispers to himself, why shouldn't I just keep it? Um, I'm going to try desperately not to do the impersonation of the actual scene. But Gandalf is trying to reassure him to give it up um, because he suspects something is off already because he's a wizard uh, and he always knows. Uh, But Bilbo starts to get really upset and he says, why should I part with it? It's mine. Uh, And then he creepily calls the ring his precious and starts weirdly petting, starts to like stroke it. Um, He yells at Gandalf and says that it's actually none of his business what... um, he, Bilbo, does with the ring. And then Gandalf, obviously played by Ian McKellen, uh, goes full wizard, and with the help of some CGI, he darkens the room, and his voice gets really loud and boomy, and he says, Bilbo Baggins, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. And then Bilbo comes to his senses, hugs his friend Gandalf, and goes on his way without the ring. It's great. It's a provoking scene, I promise. Um, You can watch it on YouTube, or just watch the movie. But the reason I bring that up is that I actually think it's a good encapsulation of what many of us feel when we become aware that we have been devoting our affections, time, money, into something that's not good for us, but for whatever reason we are drawn to. It's the central theme of Lord of the Rings, the psychological pull towards something that will destroy us. And I know um, that a fantasy story like Lord of the Rings is easy to write off as fantasy, Uh, but I'm sure that all of us here have felt or are feeling something similar, this draw towards something that's shiny and shimmering and this reluctance to let it go even though it would be good for us. I mean, it's probably not magic rings or dark uh, magic, but it could be money, you know, if only it's career, a little more, even though I've got all more than my basic needs met. Maybe it's career, success, if only I had this title achieved this thing or these people thought I was good at my job. Both of these can cause us to do weird things like work needlessly long hours, forsake friends and family in their pursuit. I've been guilty of that. Or maybe it's beauty or image. If only I had these clothes or if I looked this way or had these friends or this many followers on Instagram. Maybe it's relationships. If only this person liked me. If only these people admired me. And we pursue all these things because we think they'll make us feel more secure, less lonely. Maybe we'd even finally like ourselves. And the most insidious thing about these is that they're hard for us to be aware of uh, for two reasons. One, because they are ingrained and even celebrated in our culture, the pursuit of success and wealth. Um, And two, because it's even when we do start to become aware of it, it's easy to compare ourselves to others. Well, I don't love money as much as that guy or girl or I'm not as influence-obsessed as that person, or I don't spend as many hours in the gym or salon as those people. But if we're honest, we are all influenced by some or all of these things pretty much all the time. And they might change or be different depending on our specific culture, but no matter what background you're from or where you grew up, there's always going to be something like that. Uh, So why are we talking about this? You remember that we're in the Summer of Love series. Tonight is the final night. We're talking through 1 John, as I mentioned. So what does our current discussion have to do with 1 John? So let's go to the passage. Um, 
So just some context before we get there. This is the very last few paragraphs of 1 John. John is concluding his message, wrapping up the themes he's been talking about, about Jesus, eternal life, sin. And his central theme, obviously, is that Jesus is the light and love of the world. And it's only through him. It's only through the light of the world that we can have eternal life, eternal zoe. Um, and if you've been with us you'll, through the series, you'll know that um, John writes in a very circular way. It's not like Paul where he goes like from point to point to point. John kind of writes around his ideas. And through that, it allows us to kind of meditate on actually what he's saying. Um, so let's just get into it. So this is 1 John 5, starting at, chapter, starting at verse 13. And he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Amazing. Uh, If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, Jesus, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Okay, so there's a lot in those final few words. Um, But I don't know about you, but when I first read through it, it's the final sentence that made me feel uncomfortable. Um, Because as we've been going through this series, I can understand some of the themes that he's talking about, you know. Jesus has eternal life, sin. I can kind of start to understand what he's grappling with through what we've discussed already. Uh, So why doesn't John just end with, you know, verse 20 where he says, he is the true God and eternal life, done. Uh, But he goes on and says that weird phrase, keep yourself from idols. Um, And in sitting with that and then subsequently preparing for this talk, I actually think that that last sentence gives us the key it's not only understanding this passage, but understanding the whole book of 1 John and arguably understanding our whole lives as Christians. In biblical language, the things we've been talking about, money, power, sex, whatever, these things are called idols. Um, Vinoth Ramachandra, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, is a Sri Lankan theologian. And he gives the simplest definition of an idol that I found. He says simply that an idol is a God substitute. Something that consciously or unconsciously we give our ultimate devotion and loyalty to. In ancient times and in some parts of the world still today, idols were our actual objects, which symbolize some aspect of a God or a God. Some idols represent fertility, prosperity, some demand sacrifices of animals or time or some specific act, act of devotion. And if you're familiar, especially with some of the Old Testament, when you hear the word idol, your mind probably conjures up this image, some people bowing before a statue. And it's easy for us in 2022 to think that those ancient people uh, are stupid, 
because obviously we know that inanimate objects don't have any power. But in our Western world, don't we still do the same? We may not have the physical objects, but we definitely perform sacrifices, maybe not of animals, but of our time, of our lives to our jobs or careers. We do things in order to get more money or more beauty. And on physical objects, I'll just gently point out that I just read a study that shows that we each touch our phones upwards of two and a half thousand times a day. So, but even though, I think the comparison between us moderns and these ancients is probably more evident in the outcomes. Uh, if we spend all of our time chasing money, uh, all of our decisions are based on the pursuit of money. Ramachandra calls this the recreation of idolatry. The more we worship a specific idol, the more we are recreated into its image. Um, David Foster Wallace was an American literary prodigy. I mean, he wrote his first best-selling book before he graduated uni. Uh, and in his famous commencement address in 2005, he had this to say about the ways in which our modern idols recreate us. Um, and he was not a Christian, but he's a literary prodigy for, region, for a reason, so I'll just read what he said. Um, There's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And then he ends with this, this is what we talked about earlier, but he says, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're things that you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever really being aware that's what you're doing. Um, as someone who now works in finance, I can see the tragic recreation all the time. I mean, when I started out, my colleagues and I were normal, quote-unquote, 20-somethings who cared more about music than spreadsheets. But I've witnessed, as time has gone on, that each of us, to varying degrees, have been shaped more and more by the pursuit of money and success. Our lives slowly become a witness to the gods of the market or whatever big corporation we serve, you know, and we daily make the trek from our homes to our, their temples in the city or Canary Wharf or wherever they are. We become a little less human. And finance is easy to pick on, but I know this happens to everyone in every job. I've talked with doctors, and I know, shockingly, that it happens even to those that work at churches. So why does this happen? Why is idolatry an ever-present human temptation from Genesis 3 straight to till today? In Romans 1, Paul identifies idolatry as the fundamental sin. At the beginning of his book, he sets out the human condition. He says this about those who deny God. He says, starting in verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings 
and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul, again, is describing the human condition, this tendency to turn away from the creator to what is created. And he's essentially saying that we put ourselves or other created things at the center of creation to disastrous effects. This is the very essence of sin. So idolatry and sin. So we can now go back to our original passage and start to see the connections John is making. Before everything becomes clear, we're left with an obvious question. What's the solution? If we are infected with a desire towards things that will destroy us, then what are we supposed to do? Paul goes on in Romans after a lot of typical Paul exposition (laughs) that the solution is Jesus. At the beginning of Romans 5, he says, therefore, after summing up thousands of years of history, he says, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So of course, should have been obvious, the answer is Jesus. Um, But in this case, why? I'd suggest that the only effective antidote to idolatry, to our worship of these things that destroy us, is Jesus' death on the cross. Because the image of Jesus on the cross is the image of the one true God with all power in the universe at his command, taking the form of a lowly servant to be put to death in the most gruesome and cruel and embarrassing way (laughs) um, the world has ever seen. This image is radical and it's unique to Christianity. And it's the reason why so many people at the time when John is writing and even now do not accept that this happened. And if they do, they say that Jesus maybe somehow escaped or someone was executed in his place or it was all an illusion. Because the image of a God who is the creator of all things coming amongst us as a penniless servant to then be tortured and mutilated is subversive. Because what that image of Jesus on the cross says implicitly is that we will not find God in politics or religion because it was the political and religious religious elite who condemned him. But we will find God among the helpless, among the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, because that is where he's chosen to identify himself. And it shatters all the idols of all cultures, tribalism, wealth, globalism, exposes all of them. This is what John has been trying to say all along since the very beginning of his book, since the very beginning of his gospel, that this incarnation, this taking on of human flesh by the divine person of God in the person Jesus, and Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, this, this is the way to eternal life. The blood of Jesus gives us our humanity back through restoring us to God. So now that we have the solution, how do we actually do this? In the trenches of our day-to-day lives, how do we deal with all of this? Um, I first started going to counseling a few years ago back in Los Angeles. And at the first appointment, the counselor asked me um, why I was there and I didn't have an answer. I mean, even by all accounts, my life was great. Had a good job, close friends, no trauma in my life. Um, But something wasn't adding up. It was over the course of this 
you know, six months of counseling where I began to become aware that I had built my life, a lot of my life, on success. I thought that success was the answer. And I realized that I'd probably always kind of thought that from a young age. I mean, at school, academically, I wanted to do really well. And I was pretty driven. I mean, I used, I used to even do my math maths homework with a pen because I was so confident I wouldn't make any mistakes, which is a bit, it's an insight into me. Um, but even sports, I mean, tennis was my thing, and I had to be the best. I had to. Um, and even at work, when I first started working, I realized that my bar was perfection, that any critique or comment would send me into a spiral because internally and unconsciously, I was like, but I'm the best. Um, and I realized that the lie that I believed that my value equaled how successful I was at any given thing at any given moment. Um, and the reason I found myself in counseling was that I'd hit a wall. I was tired. I was exhausted. I wasn't as good at things as I thought I should be. And the idol of success was being exposed. And just like Ramachandra said, the idol's recreate us. C.S. Lewis goes a bit further and he says that eventually idols break the hearts of whoever worships them. Jonah 2.8 says that those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Uh, I think the message translation probably hammers the point home a bit more and it sticks with our theme. It says those who love, those who worship hollow gods or God frauds walk away from their only true love. I think the first step for all of us in this journey is to become aware of our idols, to become aware and accept that we have a problem <laughs> because you can't go anywhere without a terrible, honest assessment of where your heart is. The second step is then for us to simply to go in a different direction, to stop pursuing whatever it is we've been basing our life on. And the third and final step towards actual healing is to put Jesus back at the center the center of everything in our lives, not just some bits and pieces, but everything. And you know, a lot of us currently are experiencing a lot of anxiety. And look, counseling is great. Seeking medical help is wise and good for you. Please hear that. Those are good things. Um, and of course, there's also a lot <laughs> in the current moment to be legitimately anxious about. But I'll start to end with a su suggestion that maybe some of the anxiety that you're feeling, maybe some of the anxiety that I'm feeling is because that your life is being built on a substitute for true love, a substitute for God. And maybe the anxiety is just a symptom that the thing that you're basing your life on isn't fulfilling its promise. It's not making you feel good. It's hurting you. So what would you look, what would it look like if you gave it up? If like Bilbo, with the help of his friend, you, you gave up the thing that was corrupting you. That you didn't play the game that you know, society wants you to play. How would you feel? And how would we as a community benefit from all of us doing that? I'd suggest that we'd feel freer. We'd have more fun. We'd care for ourselves and each other more. We'd be more human. We'd feel more alive. Counseling helped me and continues to help me, but only Jesus can truly bring peace. 
a peace that goes beyond all logical understanding. So Alice is going to come now and lead us into a time of ministry, but I'll leave you with this. What is it for you? What's the thing that you've been building your life on? Obviously mine was success, but what is it for you? I'd suggest that you leave it at the foot of the cross.